Hello and, and welcome to another edition of Park at Home, Park Church's video worship experience. My name is Michael Carlson and I'm really glad to be with you. Uh, this morning we are starting a new sermon series called Drawing Near, Moving Closer to God While Far From Others. And we all know, I think, as we are having this uh, very unique, common experience, that this is a time where it's easy to become isolated. Many people undoubtedly are feeling lonely. And, uh, and, and so the hope during this time, and truly the opportunity, is that while we are in many ways homebound, while we are in many ways forced to be alone, uh, there's an opportunity to draw near to God, even while we are far from others. And, and that's our hope during this time, is that, is that in some way, wherever you are at in your journey with God, in some way, this would be a time where you are able to draw near to God. Now, uh, what, what we'd like to do to help facilitate this process is over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at seven different psalms. So seven weeks, seven psalms. And each particular psalm uh, will, will be uh, a psalm that comes from a different genre of psalms. Some, some of you may be familiar with different genres of music, right? You have country music, jazz, R&B, classic rock, uh, or maybe, maybe different genres of literature. If you go into a bookstore, you've got fiction section, you've got the religion or philosophy section, you've got the history section. There are different genres of literature. Well, biblical scholars have identified some basic different genres or types of psalms. And if you're not familiar, the, the psalms are, are a collection of 150 uh, poems, prayers and songs written to God. It's one of the books of the Old Testament in the Bible, written thousands of years ago within the historic nation of Israel, written by kings, notably King David, written by worship leaders, and, and written by some very wise people. And, and these psalms, these songs, poets, poems, and, and prayers have been used throughout the history of God's people as tools for prayer. And so what, what we'd like to do throughout this series is every week look at a different psalm, one that belongs to a different genre. And we're going to do this for seven weeks. And so, for example, next week we'll look at a psalm of lament. The week after we'll look at a psalm of thanksgiving and then a psalm of confidence and then a psalm of remembrance and then a psalm of wisdom and then a psalm of thanksgiving. But this week, we are going to look at a psalm of praise, also known as a hymn. Now, in Hebrew, the, the word that's used to, as a title for the entire book of Psalms in the Old Testament is tahalim. Tahalim. And this word in Hebrew simply means praises. And so, from a biblical perspective, the, the entire book of Psalms can be summed up in terms of praises, praises that are sung to God. Now, again, there are some very different Psalms, including lament, um, and yet in some way, 
with all of its rich diversity, with these many ways of talking to God that we find in the Psalms, all of it can in some way be summed up as praise. Now, when we talk of praise, uh, what we mean is simply ascribing great value or worth or dignity or glory to someone, right? It's, it's recognizing that someone or something is awesome and then naming it. That's, that's what it means to praise. And if you think about it, we as human beings do this all the time. We, to praise that which we think is great is, is one of our most basic proclivities, one of our most basic tendencies. I mean, think about it. When, when your favorite football team scores the winning touchdown, what's your reaction? You jump up and down, you shout, you cheer, you praise the team. Uh, when, when your favorite band or, or musical artist steps on stage at a concert, what's your reaction? You want to cheer, you want to clap, you want to say, oh, you're awesome, right? We all have this proclivity to praise. And, and what we find in Psalm 100 uh, is this beautiful and very simple expression of praise. Praise to God. This, this is Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise and give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Psalm 100, it's, it's this very beautiful, short, compact, and yet moving in many ways, declaration of praise to God. And, and the structure is very simple in this psalm. The, the psalmist, this poet, begins with a call to worship. He says, shout for joy to the Lord, right? And, and he issues this call to worship again and again, and then he gives an explanation as to why. Why should we worship God? And then he does it all again. He says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, so on and so forth. And then, and then he says why. So he issues a call to worship, a call to praise, and then an explanation for why. And yet there's something, and we'll miss it if we're not paying attention, there's something subversive in this psalm. And it comes in the very first line. Because while there is this call to worship, I want to ask the question, to whom is this call to worship? Like, who, who is the psalmist imploring to worship God? And this is what he says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. So who, who should worship God? Well, according to the psalmist, everyone, all the earth. 
This isn't just for a niche group of religious people who, for whom it happens to be their preference to worship the God of the Bible. The psalmist says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern context in which the nation of Israel lived, this, this universal imperative, this command to worship their God, the God of Israel, would have been extremely subversive, would have been controversial, would have been challenging because, because the nation of Israel was surrounded by several other nations and they lived in a context that was what, what some might call polytheistic, which means that the, the nations around them believed and worshipped many different gods. And it's a very different context than the one in which we live today. Uh, and so, so how religious life worked for most people around the nation of Israel was uh, if, if you needed a good crop for the year, well, then you would pray to the God of agriculture. And if, if your praise were, prayers were fervent enough, if your rituals that you, that you burned incense for or, or sacrifices that you made were compelling enough, then just maybe the God of agriculture will give you, will give you, would give you a good crop. Uh, if, if you were infertile and you so wanted children, then you would pray to the God of fertility, right? If you were going off to war and you needed victory, right? You would pray to the God of war. This is how it works. People had a very transactional relationship with the gods. And yet in the midst of this polytheistic culture, there was this one people who, who made a, a rather audacious claim. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. In other words, there, there is one God to whom everyone should, should offer their praises and their worship. And, and the reality is that the assertion that everyone in the world should worship this one God, the ancient God of Israel, the God of the Bible, uh, that this, this assertion is just as subversive, just as offensive today as it was 3,000 years ago. Uh, there's a, a former pastor in New York City who spent a lot of time talking with skeptics. And, and uh, he, he, not too long ago, um, wrote a book sharing about his experiences uh, talking with skeptics and having all these conversations. And, and uh, he, he summarized the, the perspective of, of a couple different individuals in, in, this, in these words. He said, quote, how could there be just one true faith? Asked Blair, a 24-year-old woman living in Manhattan. It's arrogant to say your religion is superior and try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all the religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous, added Jeff, a 20-something British man also living in New York City. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. And so you see that this, this assertion, this, this command in many ways, of the, from the psalmist that 
all the world should worship this one God. Both in its original context and today is a, is a rather bold, audacious, and subversive claim. It's a, it's a command that, that might ruffle the feathers of some. And, and yet, the psalmist has an answer. An answer to the question of why. Why is it, why is it that all the earth should worship this one God? Well, in, to sum up, the psalmist's answer is that it's because he's worthy. And, and, and this could be understood in two senses. The psalmist gives two answers to this question, and it has everything to do with the identity and the character of this God. The identity and the character of this God. Listen to what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. And then we might ask, okay, but yes, why? Why should the whole world worship this God? And then the psalmist says, Know that the Lord is God. Know that the Lord is God. God. Now, in English, when we read this, these words, it might sound a little repetitive, uh, maybe even a little redundant, possibly a little repetitious. Okay. Uh, and yet, uh, in Hebrew, this idea is so much clearer. Like, it, in, in English, it sounds like what the psalmist is saying is God is God. And yet, uh, this, this idea that the Lord is God, anytime you see the word Lord in the Old Testament in all caps, the Hebrew, which is the language in which most of the Old Testament was written, the Hebrew behind this word is the, the personal name for God, often pronounced Yahweh. It's his personal name. And then when we see the word God with a capital G, this word in Hebrew is Elohim, which is a word that other neighboring uh, societies, other neighboring people groups would have recognized. It was the word that was used to designate the, the highest position among all of the gods, the, the highest god of all, the, the father of all gods. This was Elohim. And so what the psalmist is saying when he's saying the Lord is God, he's saying Yahweh, the God who's revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the God of Israel, Yahweh is Elohim. Yahweh is the God over all creation, which is why immediately after the psalmist says, it is he who made us and we are his. Why is God worthy of the worship of the entire world? It's because of who he is. He's the creator of all things, says the psalmist. He created you and he created me. And for this reason, he's worthy of our worship. Think about it this way. Why, why do we all have that proclivity, that tendency to praise greatness? Uh, several years ago, uh, a friend of mine invited me to uh, a very special dinner. He wanted to do something very special for his wife. And so he invited a small group of us friends to 
uh, at a dinner at a restaurant in a five-star hotel. This is one of these, like, one of these restaurants where I, I had never been to a restaurant like this before, and uh, I probably never will be to a restaurant like this again. And it was this fabulous experience, and I'll never forget. Uh, it was, you know, one of these like five or six course meal type things. And I got this one dish as an appetizer, and I don't even know if I knew what I was ordering. Most of it was like in French or something. But it was a, it was a soup. It was some sort of soup that I got in this oblong bowl. And I remember getting it, and, uh, and I didn't really know what to think of it. It was some made out of some beet or root, I think. It was burnt orange, the color. And then there was this fluffy ball of something that was like white and purplish on the side in the soup, slowly melting. And, and I turned to my buddy and I said, do you know what this is? And he said, oh, that's cotton candy. And I kind of laughed. And then it was cotton candy. And I was a little skeptical, but, but then I, I got a spoonful. And the moment I put it in my mouth, it blew my mind. I, I remember thinking in that moment, oh my goodness, it's like there's a party in my mouth and everyone's invited. I, I don't know when the last time I'd ever had something that delicious was. Like bells were going off. I would say it changed my life, but that would be too much hyperbole. But it was so, so incredibly good. And then I mixed in some of the, some of the cotton candy and it just exploded in my mouth. And, and what this experience did was it compelled me after the entire meal was over, and that's the thing I remembered most. I mean, everything was good, but that soup was incredible. After the meal, I, I felt compelled to want to meet the chef. I felt compelled to want to introduce myself to the chef, just to say, that soup was amazing. I don't know what you did, but you are gifted. Like, well done. Right? I, I, wanted to, I wanted to praise the work that he had done. Right? Why do we praise greatness? Why, why when we experience something truly awesome or impressive, do we have this tendency, this compulsion to want to name it? Uh, why, why do we want to cheer when we see a, a truly great or glorious accomplishment on the sporting field or, uh, or on, on stage? when our band is playing, or, uh, or when we read a book that's truly moving and we have an opportunity to meet the author and we just wanna say, wow, this was great. Like, what is it within us that when we experience true beauty, true greatness, true glory, we, we want to just shout out and say, yes, this is amazing, you are great. It's, it's because we were created to worship. We, we were created by God for God. And, and everything that we experience in this world that's good, everything that stirs a sense of awe or wonder in us, including, including the things that we see in one another, is designed to draw our attention to the one in whose image we've all been made that all of these things that we experience, that we see that are beautiful and great and awesome and glorious are, are but shadows. They, they are echoes. Uh, they are dim reflections of the ultimate reality, which is the creator of all 
things we were created to worship. We were created to worship God. Therefore, he, he is worthy. He is worthy because there is no one greater. There is no one more impressive. There is no one more beautiful. There is no one more powerful. He is worthy of our worship. And, and yet, the psalmist doesn't stop there. The psalmist tells us that God is worthy because of who he is, because of his identity. But he goes on to also tell us that he's worthy, not just because of his identity, but also because of his character. Listen to this. The psalmist says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Why, why should all the world praise God? Well, because of who he is, he's the creator. He is worthy of our praise, but also, but also the psalmist wants us to know it's because of what he's like. It's because that in his, in his heart, in the core of his being, God is good. God is loving. And like, like it's the case for, for all of us, if, if you want to if you really want to know someone's character, uh, you, you watch their behavior, right? And this is the case for love. I mean, if I, if I told my wife every day I love you, but I never actually showed her that I love her with my actions, then my words would be empty. Well, similarly, God demonstrates his character, his goodness, his love in history. And and according to the biblical story, there, there's one way that God has demonstrated his love, that he's revealed his character more, more purely, more beautifully, more fully than any other way. And it's in the person of Jesus. Uh, the, the New Testament author, the Apostle Paul, in, in the book to Romans, which was a letter that he wrote to Christians in Rome in the first century, he said this in, in chapter 5, verse 8. He said, God demonstrates his own love for us in this way. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, if we want to know the heart and the character of God, we look at Jesus specifically. We look at Jesus's self-sacrificial death on behalf of the world. There is no, listen, there is no other religion. There is no other worldview. There is no other thought system in the history of the world at the center of which has, any, that has anything like this. At the center of the Christian story is this idea of a God who loves us, who loves sinners, who loves those who have refused to worship him and run the other way, who's loved us so much that he was willing to die for us. Like God loves sinners. God is good to us, even when we don't 
deserve it. And when we run away from him, when we worship other things, and we all do, we, we can't not worship. Either we're going to worship God or we're going to worship a part of his creation and probably be disappointed by it. Right? When, when we do this, when we run away from him, he's a kind of God because of his character, because he's good, because he's loving. He runs after us. And, and maybe you're watching this this morning and there's a sense in which you're running from God. And you need to be reminded that, that God is, is not only all-powerful and not only the creator of all, but he's the God who loves us, including when we are running away from him. And he's running after you. This is who he is. This is his character. Christianity is utterly unique. At the center of it is this God who dies for sinners because of his great love. This God is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. And even, even if, if you're listening this morning, and let's say that you're not quite sure if you believe this story. Let's say you're not quite sure if you believe in this kind of God. Can't you at least admit that that it's beautiful? Like, if, if you're not convinced it's true, don't you want it to be? Like, if, if in your mind you think, you know what, this kind of story is, is too good to be true, what if, what if the truth is actually that good? What if at the center of what's true is truly good news that in the person of Jesus we see a God who, for whom we were created, and who, who has gone to the greatest of lengths, death itself, in order to draw you near to him. This is a God worth worshiping. This is a God worth praising. And so the psalmist's bold, audacious, and beautiful declaration is that the, the command for all the world to worship God is universal. And it's because of his identity and his character, who he is as the creator of all things and, and what he's done, which demonstrates his, his character as good and loving. We were created to worship and praise God. And, and as the late great Christian thinker and writer C.S. Lewis once wrote, it is in the process of being worshiped that God communicates his presence to people. I want to invite you to find ways to praise God, whether, whether it's writing things down, setting aside time to pray. Find, find ways to simply tell God why he's great. To tell him uh, what it is you love about him. To set, set time aside. Um, and, and here's why. When, when we do this, we are tapping into something that, that is basic, that is fundamental to what it means to be human. And, and, and so what we see in this psalm and other praise psalms is an invitation to become truly human, to worship the one for whom we were created. That's, that's my invitation to you this week. Uh, and my hope is that as we continue through this week, but also this entire series, that, that while we are far from one another, we would find ways to draw near 
to God.